The Amanda Todd case finally goes to court. I'm overwhelmed because the day is finally here. Ten years after the teen took her own life, her alleged tormentor stands trial. New developments in the Trina Hunt investigation. It's just so devastating. I don't even think I've processed it yet. Why a man arrested Friday has since been released as loved ones mark her milestone birthday. And monkeypox confirmed. It is a resident of Vancouver Coastal Health. What we know about BC's first case and the risk to the public. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with an update in the Trina Hunt case. Just a few days after a man was arrested at the Hunt family home, we're learning he's now been released with no charges laid. As Krista Dow reports, it's another setback for Hunt's loved ones as they mark what would have been her 50th birthday. On the 6th of June, a reminder of a community's love for Trina Hunt. The Port Moody woman's life cut short two years before her 50th birthday. It's her birthday and we just wanted to do something for her and hope that she gets justice soon. This has been a constant theme throughout. Neighbours and strangers bringing flowers to keep her memory alive. You know, bringing him here to see where she lived and seeing the balloons and putting flowers down for her birthday. She had a neighbourhood, she had neighbours, she had flowers on her foot lawn. You know, it's just such a waste. They need some justice for her. It's been a year and a half. She needs to be, you know, put at peace. On Friday, a movement in the unsolved case. A man was arrested in connection with Trina's murder. Loved ones telling Global News it was Ian Hunt, her husband. But I hit never confirming the name of the person arrested. He has since been released with no charges. Her family is devastated. It's just soul crushing. Yeah, it's there's just no way to describe it. And I just never for a minute thought that there would just be no charges. That's just, it just, it's, I just can't comprehend it. Trina was reported missing by her husband in January last year. Her remains discovered three months later near Hope. IHIT is still working to solve the case. It doesn't mean that charges won't be laid. It's just that the time right now isn't, we aren't there yet. That's what's helping me cope with this news is that um, I think there was a reason for that. They're not giving up and they're coming for you. The family comforted by a community that has never forgotten about or given up on justice for Trina. Nobody is letting her light fade. And that is just so important. Krista Dow, Global News. A Richmond RCMP officer has pleaded not guilty to multiple counts of indecent exposure. Andrew Siangio was arrested in 2019 after a series of alleged indecent acts outside a private Vancouver girls' school. Aaron MacArthur reports and a warning some of the details in this story are disturbing. Andrew Siangio pleaded not guilty to 10 counts of indecent acts today in Vancouver Supreme Court. Crown Counsel alleges the RCMP officer exposed himself and masturbated to four different girls from private schools on Vancouver's west side. The alleged incidents happened between the fall of 2018 and the spring of 2019. According to Crown Counsel in their opening statement, the incidents are described as lasting only a few seconds without any communication. But according to Crown, the description from the four girls matched 
one of the girls provided a vehicle make and model as well as a license plate which allowed the VPD to begin an undercover operation. According to Crown, Ciangio exposed himself to two undercover VPD officers. Because of the complications involved investigating another police officer and the potential public implication of the case, the VPD officers assigned were given a commendation for their work a month ago. And this allowed the officers to gather first-hand evidence of the offenses and also to spare his young victims the trauma of having to relive their experiences by testifying in court. Following an extensive months-long investigation, the suspect was arrested. Investigators executed 22 search warrants, seized more than a sorry, more than a dozen electronic devices and gathered significant evidence to support criminal charges. The trial expected to last 3 weeks. Crown intends to call 30 witnesses, including all four girls who were victims here. Andrew Ciangio remains suspended with pay from the RCMP. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. It has been nearly 10 years since the case of Amanda Todd shocked our community. Today, the trial of the man accused of cyber extortion of the 15-year-old got underway. Aidan Coban was extradited from the Netherlands to face charges of extortion, criminal harassment, child luring and child pornography in the case. Our Romina Dea was in the courtroom today. And Romina, first a warning, the details and the language used in mm -hmm. court is not going to be suitable for everyone. Chris, absolutely disturbing, vivid evidence of what this child allegedly endured before she committed suicide in 2012. The first witness on the stand today, Amanda Todd's mother, Carol Todd, we spoke to her before she testified. This is Amanda's moment to say something and, and to do something, and hopefully um, the right outcome will come about. Carol Todd said her heart skipped a beat when she clicked on the link of her daughter. Pictures of Amanda topless, breasts exposed. It started off innocently. Amanda was a singer. She started posting online at an early age because she wanted to be famous like Justin Bieber. Aidan Coban, a Dutch citizen in his early 40s, stood in the prisoner's box and answered not guilty to five charges, including extortion and criminal harassment. Weeks before she took her life, Amanda shared her story of blackmail, torment and depression in a haunting YouTube video viewed by millions worldwide. Crown told the 12-member jury Amanda was the victim of a persistent campaign of online sextortion for three years, November 2009 to February 2012. 22 different phony user accounts on four platforms, Facebook, Skype, YouTube and Gmail. Graphic examples entered as evidence. User post. There is a video of you flashing blank on blog TV. Amanda, what do I have to do so you won't show anyone? User, once a week, we just do fun stuff on cam is all. Then the threats. Look, cam whore, you better do as you are told or I blank up your life bad. You got that, bitch? I already have 17 people in your family, 52 schoolmates and teachers of your school. I can send them this instant or you do as I say. And after 10 shows where you do as I say, I disappear. I know members of the public, they probably want blood and they assume because my client is charged that he must be guilty. Uh, this case is about whether the 
Crown can prove who's behind the messages that were sent to Amanda Todd. Amanda's mother adamant every parent needs to pay attention to this case. You know, I didn't think it would ever happen to us, and it did. And so that can happen to every single family around, and I want that message to be out there so that we can learn from Amanda's story. Now, Carol Todd will continue her testimony Tuesday morning. She is yet to be cross-examined. Other witnesses expected to take the stand also include uh, some Dutch investigators who seized hard drives and computers from Coban's home in the Netherlands, according to Crown's evidence. This trial is expected to take seven weeks. Back to you. Plenty more to come for sure. Thanks, Romina. Well, if she was alive, Amanda Todd would now be 25 years old. And even though she took her own life a decade ago, her experience has left a lasting legacy, the case helping to educate others about online harassment. As Catherine Urquhart tells us, her story was a defining moment for many about the dangers of social media. Amanda Todd's life was short. She was just 15 years old when she took her own life in 2012. But through the Amanda Todd Legacy Society, she lives on. She wanted something to be done, and that's why we're here today. Before her death, Amanda posted this YouTube video. It was a desperate call against cyberbullying, which she faced after agreeing to expose her chest in an online chat room. Similar trauma has been experienced by countless other children trying to navigate the online world. Her mother, Carol, works tirelessly to keep other kids safe. To do this for the other kids and to provide awareness and education for parents so that they can talk to their kids. The Amanda Todd Legacy Society does presentations globally about cyberbullying to schools, colleges and law enforcement. Bursaries are awarded to university students pursuing careers in child and youth development and care. We can insert the phone here. Her story inspired creation of the Amanda app, which creates a virtual experience that exposes kids to bullying, measures their empathy, and helps them respond. Amanda's life and death will also impact the law. Legal experts note the case against her alleged harasser is precedent-setting when it comes to child pornography and extortion. We mostly see extraditions in you know cases where there's a serious offense, perhaps new areas of the law and changes to the law. And that's what we're seeing here. Child pornography charges, extortion charges are on the rise and they're likely trying to set an example. And um, this is the case to do that. The loss of Amanda Todd is a true tragedy. One her family hopes will lead to change and perhaps save others. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The driver allegedly responsible for striking four pedestrians, sending two of them to hospital during a walk for reconciliation in Mission on Saturday, has turned himself in. Mounties say a 77-year-old man has come forward. He's not currently in custody, but is cooperating with police. His truck has also been seized. The walk, organized by the Crazy Indians Brotherhood, saw dozens of participants marching along Lougheed Highway to the site of the former St. Mary's residential school site. Mission RCMP had previously said the driver appeared to be upset that his trip was delayed before driving into oncoming traffic to get around the group. 
There's no indication at this time um, from uh, anything that was said at scene or from the interview by the driver that uh, there is any bias or racism uh, that was uh, played a role in this incident. Um, you know, that's something we're certainly still going to be very much alive to. And if there is evidence of that at any point, that'll factor into our charge recommendation as well. Police are hoping to speak with the driver of a blue dump truck or semi that was immediately behind the pickup truck, saying they believe that driver could be an important witness. Well, the B.C. Centre for Disease Control is confirming B.C.'s first case of monkeypox. It was recorded in Vancouver, and Keith Baldry joins us with more. Keith, we do want to stress the risk to the public is low, but mm -hmm. uh, we've heard a lot about monkeypox of late. What do people need to know? Yeah, it's very interesting. It was just a matter of time before it got here, particularly when it was reported on Friday that a case had emerged in nearby neighboring Alberta. Uh, so no surprise that one case has now been detected in Vancouver. But here are the numbers around in Canada and the world. 78 cases now with a BC case. 71 of those are in Quebec, five in Ontario, one in Alberta, one in BC. 780 cases worldwide. But that's growing uh, exponentially uh, every day. And it's now found in 24 countries outside the central West Africa area where it's endemic has been there for years and the UK has the most cases more than 300 right now but the Center for Disease Control infectious disease experts took to the media today to basically calm everyone down here it is not as an infectious disease as Omicron or COVID-19 and doesn't necessarily have as severe outcomes here's Dr. Singal from the Center for Disease Control much less infectious so you know with the with the Omicron variant of of uh, uh, of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, uh, you know, we were looking at our not value uh, of like, you know, somewhere in six to eight. So meaning that, you know, one person can infect six to eight people. The R not value for monkeypox is closer to one, uh, between one to 1 1.5. That's sort of the most recent estimates. So much, much less uh, uh, transmissible compared to COVID-19. All right, Keith, what are the symptoms we should be looking for? Well, they're not very pleasant ones, but they're not uh, really extraordinary, basically associated with all sorts of viruses. First of all, fever and chills is the most common. Intense headache, back pain, muscle pain, fatigue. And there can be a second set of symptoms that emerge after about five to seven days, and that's rash in certain areas of your body and pustule-like uh, sores that are associated with pox diseases in the past. So, again, not a lot of cases, but the number will undoubtedly grow. The Center for Disease Control is tracking every case, and they're going to be reporting it out regularly on the number of monkeypox cases in BC. All right, well, we'll see how it goes here. Thank you, Keith. Lessons learned from BC's deadly heat dome. The province reveals its plan to prepare for future extreme weather events. That's next. Officially unplugging first-in-Canada rules, giving workers the freedom to disconnect, but with a catch. That's later. And the Canadian CrossFit sensation, who's only a teenager, still to come tonight. Right now, though, it's been nearly one year since B.C.'s deadly heat dome. And today, the province rolled out a heat alert and response system to inform the public of extreme weather events. As Richard Zussman reports, while the new system will involve warnings, there are concerns that's not enough to protect the most vulnerable. Feeling the heat. After last year's event, it was clear we needed to take a hard look at our response. The B.C. government now adding extreme heat events to the province's text alert system, joining tsunamis, amber alerts, floods and fires. There will be much more notification, much more in the media, if you like, and also much more communication with local governments. 
The BC Coroner Service concluded 595 people, mostly seniors, died from last year's heat wave. There will be two levels of alerts. The warning triggered by two straight days of excessive heat over a high of 29 in the southwest with lows of 16, highs of 33 in the Fraser region, lows of 17, in the interior in Kootenays, highs of 35, lows of 18, and in the northeast and northwest, around a high of 29 and lows of 13. British Columbia is finally catching up with other jurisdictions who have used uh, warning systems across the country multiple times. In fact, some jurisdictions over 100 times. An extreme alert is triggered with three straight days of increases over average. These are expected once or twice a decade. Alerts could be a few times per year. In last summer's heat dome, paramedics were overwhelmed. The province says the next time they'll redirect staff to improve dispatch, increase use of alternative care, reprioritize events to respond to the most critical calls, and they've created 125 new full-time paramedic positions in urban areas. We're better prepared than we were. We've learned some of the lessons of what happened last year. I remain concerned about the capacity issues that we saw and continue to see, for example, in paramedic response times. One thing the province will not be doing is providing air conditioners for vulnerable British Columbians or seniors. We are awaiting the outcome of the coroner's report, which will be coming out in terms of the uh, the heat dome, and I fully expect that that will have other uh, recommendations as, as, as well. That coroner's report expected to be released publicly Tuesday morning. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Residents along the Tulamine River near Princeton could be forgiven for thinking, not again. Several properties, including some that were badly damaged by flooding back in November, are preparing for the possibility of more high water. Yeah, how we're doing? Well, as you can see, we're not doing really well, but we are kind of on the rebound now. Tulamine residents may have dodged a bullet this past weekend, but they remain on high alert as water levels could still rise again. 18 properties along Tulamine River Road are on evacuation alert, the main concern being the temporary road that was put in place after November's flood. Right now we're a little bit concerned because of the freshet. Um, It's coming up really quick and there's a lot of water coming down. It probably will yet for another two weeks. The regional district says it's monitoring water levels across the region and it has several locations for sand and sandbags. Just ahead, an historic partnership with a northern First Nation. It's a monumental step that uh, we can take a lot of pride in. A transformative development agreement restoring power and authority to the Taltan people. Also ahead, weighing the options for the weekly grocery trip. How rising food prices are hurting those who can least afford it. Just checking on the traffic situation here. Westbound on Highway 1 to the Cassiar Tunnel after clearing an earlier motorcycle accident at the south end of the Ironworkers. Traffic is still slow from Willingdon on the approach. Looking for diversified exposure to alternative energy. They've got EFTs for that. Horizons EFTs, EFT solutions for every investor. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 and the Cassiar Tunnel. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. 
A northern First Nation is partnering with the province in an historic agreement that gives it control over resource extraction on its territory. The Teltan central government regains the right of consent and stands to make a fortune off the reopening of a long dormant gold and silver mine. Kylie Stanton shows us why this is a really big deal. When the SK Creek mine first opened up 28 years ago, the local First Nation had no say in the matter. But now, that's all about to change. It's a very special day. In the first ever consent-based decision-making agreement under UNDRIP, the BC government has agreed to recognize the Taltan central government's title and rights within its territory. The way that this is structured is that our consent is needed in order to operationalize and, and build this project. The Taltan Territory is nearly 96,000 square kilometres in size, making up 11% of British Columbia. The plan is to restart the now-closed mine there as a gold and silver open pit operation, where it's expected to produce 2.45 million ounces of gold and 70.9 million ounces of silver over the course of its 10-year operating life. The province has been negotiating with Taltan under its UNDRIP legislation for the past year. But now, signing the agreement only helps to advance reconciliation in a tangible way. We recognize the inherent rights of the Taltan to make decisions on their territory. The Taltan recognize that they are part and parcel of British Columbia and Canada, and working together, we can do extraordinary things. The historic collaboration is expected to send a message that it's possible to build resource development projects in this province with full respect for the values and rights of First Nations, creating more certainty for everyone involved. It does demonstrate that with hard work, with a commitment to collaboration, with a commitment to true partnership, you can achieve uh, the gold standard uh, of Indigenous consent. If the project moves forward, it's expected to generate $733 million in mineral and income taxes and create 700 jobs, while giving those who call this land home a voice every step of the way. And that's going to lead to a more prosperous future for all Taltan people and British Columbians. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A new survey shows skyrocketing food prices are forcing a shocking number of Canadians to go hungry. As Kamal Karamali reports, that has more people turning to food banks, just as donations to food banks are dropping. There's a lot to take in for the senses at the Granville Island public market, but these days customers are practicing financial sensibility. How much is this going to cost me? For Lisa Hegedus, buying a steak is a rare treat, especially when she's now often weighing other cheaper food options. Yes, I've cut back. I am starting to look at other alternatives. And for the vendors, it's tough to wrap their heads around the surging cost of meat. I've never seen it like that before. You know, first time I've seen it, you know. Now a survey conducted by Food Banks Canada shows a growing number of Canadians are struggling to afford basics like pasta, bread and meat. 23% report eating less than they believed they should because there wasn't enough money for food. That number nearly doubles for households where individuals earn $50,000 a year or less. More than 40% of black and indigenous households in Canada have also reported eating less than they think they should, and one in five Canadians reported going hungry at least once between March 2020 and March 2022. 
COVID-19 and supply chain issues, causing a rise in inflation and driving up food costs. Prices of food are growing at a rapid pace. We're at a rapid pace. We have about 8.8%. Uh, growth in uh, food prices on a year-over-year basis in Canada. And that has significantly increased demand at food banks. Goods are flying off the shelves, leaving many of them empty. This is where we are as of today. Here at the Surrey Food Bank, fridges also devoid of any dairy goods. Our donations actually are down about 30% right now. Fewer people in, in communities are able to give because their their budgets are stretched leaving those in need paying the biggest price. People have to be thrifty nowadays. People have to stock up. With no immediate end to the surge of inflation in sight, all many can do is make some tough choices to keep their monthly spending low. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Still to come, the report into a young boy's fateful trip to the ER. There was no accountability. There's there's no recourse. What the review reveals about Jackson Glubus's visit to Abbotsford Hospital and why his parents say it's a slap in the face. Also ahead, an arrest in two unprovoked stabbings in Surrey big box stores. There's a major crash here in Surrey. Westbound Highway 10 is blocked at 132nd Street. Lots of emergency crews on scene. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. Surrey RCMP have arrested a 33-year-old woman in connection to two unprovoked stabbings in the Guildford area this past week. Police were called to the Guildford Town Center Mall Walmart on Saturday for reports of a stabbing. By the time officers arrived, The suspect had already left the store. Police say they flooded the area immediately and were able to track down and arrest her nearby. Now, police believe the same suspect might be responsible for a stabbing incident at the Guilford Superstore on Thursday that left one person in hospital with serious injuries. Anyone with information about either incident is asked to contact Surrey RCMP. Now, the parents of a young boy who died one day after being sent home from Abbotsford Regional Hospital have received the patient care quality report into their son's death. John Hua has more on what that report reveals and why Jackson Glubus's parents are calling it a cover-up. Inside Jackson Glubus's head was a ticking time bomb. And his mother believes she knows the exact moment it went off. He held his head and he screamed that blood-curdling scream if that's true a rare unknown malformation of tangled blood vessels on the eight-year-old's brain had ruptured before he was rushed to his first visit to abbotsford regional hospital in december i know in my heart my mother's intuition my gut he had a rupture on that day that means blood might have been pooling inside their son's skull for another 16 hours after he was sent home without a CT scan and diagnosed with a headache. They sent him home with Advil and Tylenol and my baby brain blood. Because a CT scan wasn't done, these parents will never know for sure. The test did find a brain bleed the next day, but Jackson died on the operating table during emergency neurosurgery at BC Children's. Chinsia Rossi says that's not even the worst part of getting the results of a Fraser Health patient care quality office review. Your first report comes back and they're just our lives. 
According to the internal review, contrary to Rossi's account that her request for a brain scan was denied, it states the doctor gave the option for a CT scan of Jackson's head. And after a fulsome discussion, Jackson's mother and the doctor decided that the CT scan would be postponed unless his condition worsened. There wasn't a discussion. There was him telling me how it was and me listening. There wasn't a choice. There was no choice. Global News asked Fraser Health for an on-camera interview with a spokesperson to discuss the specifics of Jackson's care at Abbotsford Regional Hospital and the findings of the review. But the health authority refused to offer anyone up despite the parents' written consent and expressed wishes to do so. Were the shoe on the other foot and I was seeking information, I would want to ensure that people were advocating for me and I would hope that uh, we will be able to come to uh, quickly uh, a resolution. Jackson's parents must now contact the province's Patient Care Quality Review Board for a fully independent investigation. The key finding Jackson's parents say they're holding on to it is hard to say for certain that an earlier CT scan would have or could have changed this tragic outcome. It's a slap in the face. It's, um, it's wrong. And it hurts. Deep in their hearts, they believe it would have. John Hua, Global News. Up next, out of office. How Ontario is giving workers the right to disconnect. And later... CrossFit is something I look forward to. It's my happy place. The super fit 15-year-old crushing it in competitive CrossFit. Ontario is the first major jurisdiction in Canada to institute a right to disconnect law. It applies to companies with staff of 25 or more. But the new law doesn't actually require employees to leave you alone after work hours. Global's Anne Gaviola explains what it does mean. The pandemic blurred the lines between work and home life like never before, especially for those who worked remotely. So the arrival of Ontario's right to disconnect law was most welcome, according to HR and employment labour expert Laura Williams. There's been such a shifting of what we value, how we want to live, how we want to work. And coming out of the pandemic, what have we all really prioritized? Ourselves. But don't be fooled by the wording. The new rules don't actually guarantee workers a right to disconnect beyond existing provincial laws. Only that employers have to be clear about what disconnecting from work entails. The numbers, though, paint a clear picture of the problem. A 2021 Sun Life survey found one in three workers across Canada are suffering from burnout. And a recent poll by Robert Half suggests millennials more than older generations are burnt out, while women reported higher burnout rates than men. France was the first country to implement right-to-disconnect legislation with other European countries following suit. Now, Ontario's rules are the first in Canada and apply to companies with 25 employees or more. But the approach on this side of the Atlantic leaves more in the hands of employers, according to this labour lawyer. We tend to, more often than, than in European nations, put long hours working late into the night on a pedestal. The Office of the Federal Labour Minister tells Global News Ottawa remains committed to developing a right-to-disconnect policy and that coming out of COVID, there's an opportunity to make workplaces permanently better. 
No timeline was given for federal legislation, but even once implemented, it would only apply to the 5% of the workforce subject to Ottawa's employment laws. Disconnection for work is not going to be just a flash in the pan, um, kind of uh, flavor of the week discussion because of the mental health crisis that we find ourselves in coming out of the pandemic. Observers say it's just a matter of time before others follow Ontario's lead, though questions remain about how rules can and will be enforced. Anne Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. Happy to get a change in the weather today. It certainly seemed a little warmer and a good and, change. And drier than it was yesterday as I was at a Little League baseball game that was nearly rained out, but thankfully not. What's to come, Christy? Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a nice little break right now, but overall we still have this continued pattern where La Nina really has a, a hold over us, bringing the wet, cooler conditions uh, to our region. And when we look at the long-range forecast, it looks like things are going to continue in that trend throughout June, although we may come out of it to near normal conditions through the month of uh, July and August. That's sort of the long-range outlook right now put out by Environment Canada. Let me show you the overall pattern that we're dealing with, though, right now. The jet stream is targeting the south coast, and that's why we're seeing one system after another. The low-pressure centers themselves actually ride along the jet stream. So we've got another one on our way on the way for tomorrow evening, although the day will be dry. The next one moves in on Thursday, and then we've got another one on deck for Saturday. So it's really one thing after another. But the good news is we do catch a little bit of breaks. However, the bad news is, of course, we've got a number of areas under a flood watch. So added moisture to the system is not a good a, a good uh, thing, that's for sure. So Liard River we're looking at, Skeena, Bulkley River, as well as the Dean River right now. So be on alert, and you can always tune into the BC River Forecast Centre for more details on your area there. Now here's a look at what we're expecting. So tomorrow, not a bad day. We expect to wake up to sunshine tomorrow morning. We are going to see increasing cloud in the afternoon, and we'll likely see showers develop through the evening hours, rainfall through the late evening overnight. But it looks like we come out of it in time for our Wednesday. So as I mentioned, although we're seeing a series of systems, that's not a good news for the flood situation. At least we're catching some dry breaks here and there. So sunshine tomorrow, you can expect inland regions to warm up to 24 degrees. So nice and warm tomorrow. And again on Wednesday, the bulk of the rainfall will happen tomorrow night, but we still have two more systems on deck after that. Tonight's central windows weather window comes to you from Ladysmith. Uh, Ken and Jan sent us this. This is what they say is an albino uh, uh, robin. They've been watching it grow throughout the last few weeks and they say that he's nice and strong and they're calling him Alby. So I'm not sure if albino robins are, are possible, but it sure looks like it here. Thanks to Ken and Jan for that. Maybe a spirit robin. Yeah, we've just put it out there and I'm sure <laughs> we'll hear from an ornithologist who knows. Did I get that right? I hope I got that I right. think you did. I think yeah. you did. Uh, bird expert. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Well, one of Vancouver's biggest and most colorful celebrations is making a comeback after two years of the pandemic. That's right. The Vancouver Pride Society is bringing back a full slate of in-person events this summer. Under the theme of Together Again, nearly two full months of events celebrating the 2S LGBTQ AI plus communities are kicking off today with a string of workshops, parties and panels. The centerpiece of the celebration will once again be the Pride Parade, happening July 31st. The full schedule is available online at vancouverpride.ca. All right, let's bring in Squire now. Uh, still talking about that turn of events. 
on the weekend with mm-hmm. men's and soccer. It, and it seems to have turned again. Uh, the men's soccer team is back practicing after refusing to play yesterday. They arrived at the uh, Whitecaps training facility this afternoon. They say negotiations on a new deal with Canada Soccer are moving forward. They haven't practiced at all since last week. Also tonight, a teenager putting the rest of us weekend warriors to shame. Her impressive showing at the World CrossFit Games. Lots of disappointed fans after that game was cancelled yesterday, Squire. Yep, it was cancelled at BC Place, and it was a rather last-minute cancel, I should add. It was a situation, I think, where the players maybe thought there was an agreement that would come just before game time. They, of course, are trying to get a new contract with uh, Soccer Canada. I kind of wish the players had played that game not messed around the fans and then drawn their line in the sand, but that's what happened. As I said, I think maybe they felt a deal would happen in time or maybe that canceling the game was their best form of leverage. One of the main issues is the players want 40% of the bonus that all teams get when they make the World Cup, which will be at least $10 million. Today, things did change a bit. All of Canada's players agreed to practice with a game against Curacao, still scheduled for Thursday at BC Place. Asa was out of practice. He has this uh, quick update. All right, we'll start with the good news. Squire, what we are seeing right now is that the Canadian men's national team is back on the training pitch. We found out about this training session through a letter leaked on Twitter that announced that they would be training today. We also found out that uh, the negotiations are continuing and uh, they will have some meetings scheduled for this week and hopefully that game on Thursday against Curacao at PC Place will happen on time. We'll find out what happens next. Back to you, Square. All right. Are the Oilers dead men walking? They have to win four in a row to stay in the playoffs. And they allow the first goal tonight against Colorado. It's Kale McCarr, who's just been a horror show. If you're an Oiler fan, he's been doing everything. Slowing down McDavid, getting points for the Avalanche. one nothing. But in the second period, the Oilers get things going here. Dry sidle to Zach Hyman. That's the first for three Oiler goals in the second period. McDavid has one of the Nugent Hopkins. The other It's now 3-1 Edmonton in the second. A.J. Ewart is one of the best young golfers from Canada. He's still playing college golf in the States, but he's certainly on the path to being another B.C.-born and raised member of the PGA Tour, especially after the collegiate season he just had. This week, Coquitlam's A.J. Ewart will not have to carry his own golf bag because he's going to be part of the field for the Canadian Open, the first time he's gotten to play in a tournament alongside PGA players. It's cool to play in the tournament and all, but, you know, I'm there to compete and I want to beat those guys too, but it'll be cool to see my name up with those guys. Ewart has seen his name on and atop a lot of leaderboards this year, playing for Barry University out of Miami, Florida. He won seven events, including four in a row and six of the last seven he entered. Lofty stuff, but then again, AJ has lofty goals. Um, I set out to be the player of the year. I wanted to win five times. Um, we wanted to win the national championship. We fell just short of that, but um, yeah, I've reached a few few of my goals, but still got a few more to reach. 
It's safe to say that this is the best week of A.J. Ewart's golfing career. Not only is he starting the Canadian Open on Thursday, but this past weekend, he won the Jack Nicklaus Award as Player of the Year in NCAA Division II. And the man giving him the award was the Golden Bear himself. It was really cool just to be in his presence. And we had the opportunity to ask him. Uh, each of us had the opportunity to ask him a question. So um, he gave me some good advice and he gave the rest of the guys some really good advice too. So um, yeah, it was really, really cool. In many ways, A.J. Ewart was born to play this game. First time you picked up a golf club, how old were you? I'm going to say one. Yeah, my dad got me into it super early, so that's all I've known my whole life. His dad is Brad Ewart, a well-known local pro and teacher of the game. And unlike a lot of players of his generation, A.J. isn't all about overpowering a golf course. My short game's always been good. Um, that's something me and my dad have just always done from a young age. We, I had a chip and green in my backyard, so I've always just been really good around the greens and my putting, I've been working hard on my putting, which can always improve, but that's something that's, that's grown as well. And for someone who's not afraid to think big, what are AJ's goals for this week's Canadian Open? I want to do as best as I can. I mean, I, I, I think top 10 is, a, is doable, so um, I think if I stick to my game plan and play my game and and not get caught up in everything that's going around and just go there and, and, and play the golf course and, and not anybody else, and uh, I'll be fine. Way to go, AJ. Crazy. You always love a golfer who sinks the putt just so we can put it on. For the cameras, good. Perfect ending. Uh, Phil Mickelson has decided he will play in the first ever Live Golf event in London, England this week. This is a tour run by Greg Norman backed by some big money from Saudi Arabia, which the PGA sees as an enemy and has threatened sanctions on players who play in live tournaments. Dustin Johnson's agreed to play this event this week. So has Sergio Garcia. Mickelson got into trouble over things he said about the PGA and the country of Saudi Arabia when his name first surfaced as possibly playing in these new golf tournaments. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. A super fit 15-year-old who gave up on gymnastics but found something a lot better. Next. Sarah McDonald is here now with a look ahead to what's coming up at 11 on Global News. Sarah? Yeah, so for following a contentious vote at the Vancouver School Board tonight, will they or won't they close a French immersion primary school? Plus, Bear on the Loose, the case of the wandering bear snooping around Burnaby right now in the efforts of conservation officials to redirect it. All that and more coming up at 11. Guys, keep an eye out for that. Thank you, Sarah. A teen from Saskatoon is tearing up the CrossFit circuit with strength and endurance she first found doing gymnastics. Now the 15-year-old is one of the top CrossFit athletes in the world, and her career is just getting started. Global's Tegan Rush has more. Bryn Delaney finishes her half day at school, then arrives to her second home, CrossFit 306. CrossFit is something I look forward to. It's my happy place. It's where I have fun because I have a group of coaches and friends that we're almost like a family. The 15-year-old is fairly new to the sport. She's only been training consistently at a high level for the last two years. At 5'9", Delaney outgrew gymnastics both physically and mentally, which led her to a new type of gym. As I kept training, I got better and better and then I started entering competitions kind of for fun and then I realized that I could actually do well in it. For the second year in a row, Delaney put her talents to the test trying to qualify for the CrossFit Games. 
Athletes from around the world submit videos of themselves doing set workouts for each qualifying round. I knew I was moving up in the sport, but I didn't know that I'd end up being top 30. And it was just unreal that I could make it that far. And I was super happy and proud of myself. Delaney finished 22nd out of approximately 1,500 14 and 15 year olds. A huge improvement from her 55th place finish last year. One of her coaches believes the sky's the limit when it comes to her potential. There's a limit. I think uh, that's kind of the beauty of CrossFit for anybody, um, but particularly with Bryn coming in with her skill set, her background, um, yeah, where she's been in the past. I think uh, she's got bright things in her future. Delaney's ultimate long-term goal is to compete in the CrossFit Games, but for now, she's just going to make every workout count. I, I can go wherever I want, so I just... Improving. I just want to improve. Tegan Rasha, Global News. It's like torture in many ways. But good for her. Pull-up things she was doing look like fun. <laughs> if you can actually do them, which I cannot. But That's your idea of fun? I mean, it looked like fun. <laughs> if you <laughs> could do it? them, I'm sure it's a lot of no, fun. No, I cannot it. do them. Yeah, watching it. I meant watching them. They look like fun. Okay. <laughs> Take a lot of training. All right, what looks like fun is getting out in that sunshine this evening, at least the last little bit of it before it goes down. Christy? Absolutely. Then that's what you have to do over the next little while when you see sunshine. Make sure you enjoy it. Uh, tomorrow we are going to wake up to sunshine. We'll likely see increasing cloud in the afternoon. The rain is not expected, though, until the evening hours. And some areas may not even see it until the late evening hours. So tomorrow's not looking too bad and nice and warm. Highs will range from 20 near the water to potentially 25 degrees inland. So enjoy tomorrow before the next set of rain pushes or bout of rain moves in sort of tomorrow evening. All right. We've been warned. Thanks, Christy. Nice to see some sunshine again and feel some warmth. Mm -hmm. It's about time. All right. Thanks for watching tonight. Have a good night, everybody. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.